guys. That was a blessing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> wow. I have always wanted to be able to sing, and I have never been able to have a singing voice. Uh, now, you're singing. No, okay. Okay. Well, everybody's around here. I, uh, I tell you what, I have been so impressed with your pastor. I, I have just fallen in love, Brother Jim, and, and uh, in, in a good Christian way now. It's, 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 uh, it's not safe in today's society for a man to stand up and say, I just love that man. But anyway... Uh, Jim and, just, and, and his family, and uh, it just, uh, thank you all so very much for becoming our friend. And uh, we're going to be out at their house tomorrow, and uh, as much as I love Brother Jim, I just love to hear him eat. And so I'm going <laughs> to, I'll have that opportunity again tomorrow, and that'll be, a, that'll be another blessing. Uh, uh, I, uh, Brother Valentine asked me about my cousins. I, I have more cousins I can check his stick at. But of all the cousins we have, we're most proud of Cleo and Cletus. The reason they are the only set of twins in the entire Perkins family. Uh, their birthday is April the 14th, and we did not realize that Cleo was a twin until Cletus was born a year later. But we're proud of those boys. <laughs> we are proud of those boys. And, uh, but, but life hasn't been just very easy for them concerning... Uh, their their marriage. I mean, you know, uh, they've had several marriages and this type of thing. Uh, Cleo was talking to me, and he said, Ernie, if I'd known I was going to have so many female problems, I'd had a hysterectomy when I was younger. Uh, they they just, I mean, just one thing after another, you know, and, uh, and Cletus the very same way. And so in the current wife that Cletus has now, I was trying to help the old boy, and I said, now, Cletus, son, you and Cleo are too self-centered. Y'all don't pay attention to the needs of your wife. I said, you need to just try to pay attention to her needs and try to meet those needs. Make her be the number one in your life. And I said, you know, uh, both of you are you know, church people, and you love the Lord and all of that, but, but when it comes to human relationship. Uh, you, you guys are just too much in love with, each, you know, with yourselves. And you, you just need to start uh, trying to be more attentive to the needs of your wife. Well, I was over to see Cletus here a while back. And when I got there, Mrs. Cletus was just beside herself. She was just bubbling all over the place. I said, well, you surely seem to be feeling real good today. She said, oh, yes. Said, Cletus just blessed me so much last night. I said, but that's wonderful. How in the world did he do that? She said, I had one of those days that nothing went right. Everything I did just blew up in my face. Nothing went right all day. And then it was time to fix dinner. And I went into the kitchen thinking, what in the world am I going to fix for us tonight? It just, and all of a sudden, I heard Cletus behind me as he came. He said, do you want to go out? I just turned around, threw my arms around him, and said, Oh, yes, Cletus, thank you. How in the world did you know that I needed to do that tonight? She said, We went out and had dinner out and just had a wonderful time. And 
It was just, it was just perfect. I was talking to Cletus later, and I said, Now, Cletus, that is exactly what I've been trying to tell you. You saw what a hard day that your wife had had, and then you just saw that you needed to help her, and you asked her if she wanted to go out. Cletus said, Well, Ernie, actually, I was talking to the dog. You know, God used Paul to write so much of the New Testament. But there's a verse in chapter 3, verse number 10 of the book of Philippians that I think is one of the most amazing verses that Paul wrote. Because it doesn't make a bit of sense when you first look at it. We Baptists have a tendency that if I want to know if you're saved or not, I will usually ask something along this line. Do you know the Lord? Isn't that basically how we introduce ourselves to a witness opportunity? Do you know the Lord? Now, notice what Paul says in chapter 3, verse number 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death that I may know him. Paul, what in the world are you telling me? Are you telling me after all the things you have put up with, you're in jail right now for preaching the gospel. You have been beaten for preaching the gospel. You have experienced all types of suffering for preaching the gospel. Are you telling me now? That in light of all of that, that you did it as a lost man, that you're not saved? What in the world do you mean, Paul? I think that Paul would answer something like this. Oh, I know him, Ernie. I got a train with him on the road to Damascus when I fell into the dust, but more importantly, I fell in love with Jesus. Yeah, I know him, Ernie. But you see, I want to know him better. It's somewhat similar to the first time I saw Wanda. I made a passing reference. I went over to the BSU. I had transferred to Arkansas State from Union University. And so I was a sophomore, just got on campus. Been on campus for about two weeks when I walked into the BSU, and there I saw her for the first time. And I said, I want to know her. If you had come up to me ten minutes later and had said, Ernie, do you know that girl over there? I would have said, I sure do. Her name's Wanda Drabel. I can tell you what her plans are for next Saturday night. They don't include me. <laughs> yeah, I knew her. But you know, on September 29, 1961, if you had asked me about 5 o'clock that afternoon, Ernie, you got a date with Wanda tonight. Do you know her very well? I would have said, you better know that I better know that I know her real well because in a couple of hours, I'm going to be marrying that girl. Yeah, I know her. But you know, when we celebrated our 25th anniversary, boy, I remember that. We, we had saved our money, saved our money because we're going to Hawaii for our 25th wedding anniversary. We saved our money, saved our money. We didn't make it to Hawaii, but we went a mile and a half up the road and spent the night at the Holiday Inn. 
And if you had come to me and said, Ernie, did you know Wanda? I would have said, boy, you better know I do. I know her today a whole lot better than I did 25 years ago. Now, next Sunday, we'll be celebrating number 58. Ask me tonight, do I know Wanda? I would say, oh, yes. I know Wanda more deeply, more fully, more completely than any other human on the face of the earth knows Wanda. Yeah, I know. I know a whole lot more than I did 25 years ago or 50 years ago. Yeah, I know Wanda. I don't know her as well as I will Sunday. Because Sunday, I will know her even as I am known by the Lord Jesus. You see, that's the way I think Paul is talking about here. I think that Paul is saying, my desire to know Jesus is just to know him deeper, more fully, in a more intense way. I just want to keep on growing in my appreciation and my knowledge of the Lord Jesus. That's the desire of my heart. Well, Paul, is there any particular areas in which you want to know him? Well, he could have named a whole lot, but he named three. And I just want us to look at those three. Lord Jesus, bless your word tonight. For I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Look at the first one. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. Now let me ask you a question tonight. Somebody who knows absolutely nothing about your religious faith. They know nothing about the Christian faith. Not one bit. They have a vague idea that you worship a God. But that's just about it. But they want to know more. And they come to you and they ask you, is your God a powerful God? Is he powerful or is he weak? You would say, oh, my God is powerful. Well, will you give me a, an example? Will you give me an illustration uh, of his power? What, what would you use to illustrate the power of God? I've always been fascinated by the stars. When I was a boy, you could see them. It's hard to see the stars today. Man-made lights have hidden the stars. And every once in a while, when one and I are traveling across country, we're able to be far away from the man-made lights and we'll just stop by the side of the road and just get out and spend some time looking up at the beautiful, beautiful sky with those silver nail heads and that black velvet ceiling there. They all are with all the glory of that. I would have a tendency to want to find a place like that and then tell that person, look at all of that. My God made every one of those. And he can call every one of them by name. Yeah. That's how powerful my God is. But Paul does not take us out on a starlit night. He doesn't take us to the rim of the Grand Canyon. He doesn't take us where we can see the beauty of the Niagara Falls. Paul takes us to an empty tomb. Well, what in the world is there about an empty tomb that Paul says, 
I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. You've heard me say that when I was a boy, I didn't have a church background. I didn't start having that until I was 10 years of age when my daddy got gloriously saved. When my daddy got gloriously saved, our whole family changed overnight. And so, therefore, I... I'm praising God for that wonderful experience of my daddy's salvation because it affected the whole family. But as a boy, even before I started going to church, I had an Arkansas little boy mentality and theology. To me, God was Superman in religious garb. He did not have an S on his chest. He had a great big G on his chest. And he was faster than a speeding bullet. He was more powerful than a locomotive. He was able to leap tall buildings with a single bound. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's super God. There wasn't anything God couldn't do. My cousin and I were standing on the banks of the Mississippi River, and he said, nobody could swim that. And with all of the piety of a little boy, I said, I know somebody who can. God could swim that river. Yeah, my God could do anything. I'm older tonight, hopefully a little bit more wise. And I've come to understand there's some things God cannot do. I have come to understand there's some things I can do that God cannot do. The Bible says it is impossible for God to lie. You listen to my tall tales. You listen to me what I tell you about Cleo and Cletus. And you can say, you know, that old boy can do a pretty good job at it. You see, there are some things God cannot do. He cannot lie. Why? Because he's true. And he cannot die because he is life. And he cannot sin because he is holy. But when we go to the cross, what do we see God the Son doing? We see God the Son doing what seemingly is impossible for God to do, but he does it anyway. Number one, he became sin for us. Now, there's a world of difference in becoming sin and being a sinner. He was never a sinner. He had never committed a single sin in the world. But I want you to know that upon that cross, God took every sin that had ever been committed since Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden until time is no more. Every sin that you have ever done, every sin that I've ever done, every sin that we have ever done, God took the punishment for every one of those sins and he stopped piled them on that figure that was on the cross and the wrath of God for sin burned Upon that cross, he became sin for us. What God cannot do, God the Son did. He became sin for us and paid the price for our sins. And he died on that cross. And the empty tomb proved that Jesus, God, the Son, could do what was impossible to do and yet was able 
to do it anyway. Oh, grave, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And the cross is the ongoing testimony of the power of our God. It is an amazing testimony. When you went to Israel, you saw that empty tomb. One of the highlights of my trip to Israel was a garden tomb. I'm not too impressed with that other thing that they have built. You know, you know the one I'm talking about. But there's something very simple and yet very majestic about that tomb, isn't there? And there in that very common was the most uncommon thing that could have ever have happened since the creation of the world. God the Son who had died rose again and he rose victoriously and that is a demonstration of the power that God has. Now if God can do that which is seemingly impossible for God to do but he's able to do it anyway, what problem do you have that it's too big for God to handle. You know what we almost say sometimes? We would never say it out loud, but let me tell you what our actions are saying. Our actions sometimes say something like this. God, I know you love me. I know you love me so much that if only you could, you would help me in my situation right now. But that's almost the attitude that we have. That my problem just too big for you, God. Listen, the empty tomb tells us that God is a powerful God. And that's where Paul takes us to yield to us the demonstration of his power. And then he said, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, for a long time, I just used that word suffering as a singular word. But notice it has an S on both ends. It is more than just one suffering. And there's a point where, yes, I am on that cross with him by proxy. My sins are there with him on that cross. And there's a point where I have fellowship with him on the cross. But what about the other sufferings that Christ endured? But what other sufferings was it that he could have endured? John chapter 1, he came into his own. And his own received him not. Have you ever been rejected? Have you ever been rejected? I had a woman in my office. Her husband had traded her in on a younger model. And now she had no husband. Her children had no daddy at home anymore. And this woman was hurting in an unbelievable way. And finally, she just screamed out so loud you could hear her over the entire office complex. She just cried out, Why didn't he just kill me? Why didn't he just kill me? The pain of rejection. Now, one that I have an understanding. I am to die first. And if she disobeys me, I am taking her before the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention, 
and having her chastised for not being obedient to her husband. I am to die first. Some of you, though, have walked through a valley that I pray God I'll never walk through. Your spouse has died. And I have no, no way to even begin to imagine how dark and deep that valley is. But as hard as it is for me to picture it, I think I could stand by her coffin and look at her in death easily. That I could hear her say to me, Ernie, for 58 years you have embarrassed the stew out of me. You're not normal. There's something wrong with you. We walk into a Mexican restaurant and you ask, are we in time for the Chinese buffet? And you ordered that hamburger and a Diet Coke at McDonald's and the little girl said, you want to eat it here or take it with you? And you replied, well, I hope to do both. And, and you're just always doing stuff like that. You even ordered at Cracker Barrel when you ordered and and told them you wanted a pinto beans, you asked them to cook your beans individually one at a time because they cook them all together, they lose their individuality. You are constantly embarrassing me. And I don't want to have to put up with that anymore. I don't know how many more years I have to live, but I don't want to live them with constant embarrassment, and so therefore I'm leaving you. I think I could take standing over her casket easier than I could hear those words. Because in both ways, I would have lost her. But in one of those ways, not only would it have been lost, that would have been rejection. Friends of church have always got to take a stand against divorce. But let me tell you something. We need to be very supportive and helpful and try to be there for those who are walking through that hard valley because greens do not die painlessly. And there's a lot of painful, hurting people who have been rejected. And I believe that that is one of the sufferings that Jesus endured. A rich young ruler came to him and said, Good master, what must I do that I inherit eternal life? Friends, how many ways of salvation is there? One. All right, the best way to express that is what Paul says in book in Acts chapter 16. What must I do to be saved, the jailer said. What did Paul reply? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. This young man comes to Jesus and basically he's asking the same question. What must I do to be saved? Jesus told him, Sell what you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. Now, wait just a minute. Wait just a minute. If there's only one way of salvation, how in the world do we end up with two different ways being expressed? Well, let's go back and look at this young man for just a minute. This young man comes to Jesus. He is cram-packed full of self-righteousness. 
I mean, you couldn't add another little ounce of self-righteousness in that old boy. He is so cram-packed full of it that he is coming to Jesus, and he knows that he is going to thrill the shots off of Jesus just by saying, hey, I'm ready to kind of throw you in with you, so just tell me, what would I have to do? And he knows that Jesus is going to say, well, man, absolutely nothing. Come on, I'm thrilled to have you. Before any man can get saved, that man has got to realize he is a sinner. Every man has got to realize it. The devil has two main goals. Number one is to make every lost man believe he's saved and to make every saved man believe he's lost. And so, therefore, this lost man comes. He is so full of his self-righteousness. Jesus said, well, keep the Ten Commandments. <laughs> I've kept every one of those. I've done it since I was just a little boy. Man, what else would I like? Oh, you kept every one of them? Well, let's just go down and let's see if you have. Tell what you have and give it to the poor. What is the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other God before me. You kept every one of the Ten Commandments. Let's just go down and see if you have. Sell what you have and give it to the poor. The young man couldn't do that. Why? His possessions were his God. That's why. And the young man saw himself for what he was. And he had too much pride to say, God, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner, and I'm coming to you for your mercy. And he turned and he walked away. But one of the Gospels says that Jesus saw him leaving, but Jesus loved him. Friends, I want you to know, I believe in my very heart of hearts that it breaks God's heart to see lost people walking out those doors saying no to Jesus Christ during the invitation. And it ought to break your heart, and it ought to break mine. We ought to be concerned about the lost people, and we ought to share that burden that the Lord has for them. He loved them so much, he died for them. We ought to love them enough that we'll pray for them, and that we'll live a Christian life in front of them to be a testimony to them. He says, I want to be a part of the fellowship of the suffering, being made conformable, under his death. Now, what in the world did he mean by that? Let me give you an idea. One and I have two sons. Our oldest boy, uh, he he loved sports, but he had my sports ability. The height of my athletic career was the spring of 1956. That was the height of my athletic career. I did not make the ball team, but I caught a case of athlete feet that spring. (laughs) And that's where my older boy was. But my younger boy, he was more agile. And at the age of 13, he decided that he wanted karate to be his sport. And it may be because of the Karate Kid movies that came on about that time. I don't know. But he became a karate kid. Man, he took all of those things. I remember 
when he first got his white belt, and that's what you get when you first begin. I don't know if you know anything about karate, but their uniforms are a pair of white pajamas. And they don't have any buttons, but they have a drawstring for to hold their trousers up, and then they take that, that coat or that top, you know, and they wrap it around like that. And then they take a cotton belt about that wide and about six feet long, and they tie that thing around to hold their belt, uh, their, their shirt, their, their top in place. And uh, the first color belt is a white one. That means that he's a beginner. And then after a certain period of time, that white one may be, become another color. It's a yellow or then whatever. And you can tell how far along a karate student is by the color of the belt that he has. And I remember when my son was out there. Here he is, 13 years of age. He has his little white pajamas on. He has his white belt on. And he very awkwardly doing all of those things. But then the belt keeps on changing colors and he becomes smoother and keeps on getting better until finally he wanted to start going to the different uh, tournaments that they would have. And in those tournaments, he would uh, get into those uh, uh, contests, those fights with somebody that would have a similar color belt that he had. And uh, he wanted me to be his sparring partner. I would get out with my boy. And I would be so concerned because I didn't want to hurt him. But those belts keep on changing colors. And his kick keeps on getting higher and everything. My attitude changes completely. I don't care if I hurt the dude or not. <laughs> I would get out there with him, but I would not enjoy it. I would get a kick out of it, but I did not enjoy it. Now... The last belt that you get before you get the coveted black belt. The black belt means you're there. But the one before the black belt is a brown belt. By the time you reach the brown belt stage, you know karate. My son is a just finished his junior year of high school. We're on our way to Duncan from Oklahoma City, where he is to take his test for his brown belt. I have been to those. I've seen other guys take their test for their brown belt. He's in the back seat. His mother and I are taking him. He is as excited as he can be. He had been working for this. He'd been running. He'd been doing all of those things, getting himself in shape. And I'm saying to myself, son, don't you know what's waiting for you today? Don't you know that before the day is over, you're going to be hurting all the way from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet? Don't you know that? I have seen what these guys have to go through. They have to run through a brick wall. They have to break through a, a, a bank vault. They have to be in a, a crowbar. I mean, you know, I've seen what they do. And then they have to fight gobs of guys, one right after the other, I know what you're going to have to go through, and you're about there excited about it. Don't you know what's waiting for you today? And sure enough, when that day was over, he had his brown belt, but we took him to the hospital in Duncan to get him stitched up. One year later, on Saturday before he graduated from high school, on Monday, 
Well, now wait a second. He's going to be taking a test for his black belt. It's going to be twice as hard as his brown belt had been. He's in the back seat. He's excited. He is as excited as he can be. Now, listen, young man, I want to tell you something. Listen carefully to me, okay? The day is going to come when some little girl is going to steal your heart and you're going to fall in love, okay? Nothing wrong with that. And being the honorable man that you are, you're going to ask that pretty little girl to marry you. And if she has any sense, she's going to say yes, okay? All right? And then with a passion of time, God's going to bless you, and believe it or not, you're going to become a wonderful daddy. But I want to tell you something right now. It doesn't matter how hard we men try, the women's side of the family will come out in our children sometimes. Okay? I'm listening to my son in the back seat of that car. He is excited, and I'm saying, Son, don't you remember last year? It's going to be twice as bad this year. You're going to be bleeding. Your nose is going to be bleeding. I hope it won't be broken. Your lips are going to be split. I hope you still have all of your teeth. Son, don't you know what's waiting for you? And then I realized that's not a Perkins in the back seat. That's a gravel in the back seat. (laughs) We Perkins have an allergy. There's something we are allergic to. It is called pain. But he was so excited about it. We got over there, and sure enough, I want you to know, it was as bad as I figured it was going to be. It was terrible, and when the day was finally over, he was standing in front of me. His lips were split. His nose was bleeding. He was hurting from all over the place. But then he got a towel, wiped the blood from his face the best that he could, walked up on a little stage, and then he posed by her, his grotty instructor took a black belt about that wide, about six feet long, wrapped it around his waist twice, and girded it down. And that was Micah's hour of glory. Throughout the New Testament, especially in the book of John, you hear the continuing reference and statement. My hour of glory has not come. And every time Jesus says that, it seems that he is looking toward Calvary. And I want to say, Lord, don't you know what's waiting for you at Calvary? Don't you know that you're going to be bleeding? Don't you know you're going to be hurting? Don't you know what is waiting for you at Calvary? My hour of glory has not come. So I follow along behind him. I want to see the hour of glory. I go with him into the garden of Gethsemane, and I'm listening to him as he is praying there. I hear him as he tells the disciples, pray with me. Pray with me. I hear him as he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He wasn't excusing the boy for going to sleep with that statement. He was saying, My spirit is willing to go to that cross. That is my destiny. That's why I came into the world. But the human flesh that I'm wearing is ready going to that cross. I know what's waiting for me there. And as he's praying in that garden, I'm listening all over for the glory 
but I don't see it. I see the sweat as it is turning to drops of blood on his brow. When I keep looking into the darkness, I'm looking for the glory, but I don't see it. I see that band of soldiers that they come and they arrest him. And then I see that mockery of a trial. And in the mockery of the trial, I'm looking for the glory. But instead of that, I see the slashes of the whip as it goes against his back. I see the blows of the fist as they go into his face. I see the plaid of the thorns that it is pushed down upon his brow. I see the pain that he's enduring on all of that. But I do not see the glory. I follow him to Golgotha. I hear the ringing of the hammers as they drive those nails. I hear the moans. I see the cross and they lift it high and drop it into that hole. And I feel the tug against him. And I hear the cry of pain, but where's the glory? The midnight hour comes. It is finished and he died. I'm sorry. I saw the blood. I heard the pain. But I saw no glory. Let this mind be in you, which also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And being fashioned as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him, has given him a name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, are things in heaven, things in earth, and things on the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord <laughs> to the glory of God the Father. The cross was in his glory. The cross was the route to his glory. And everything that Jesus did, what he was on the face of the earth, he did with one objective, main objection, and that main objective was to be a glory to the Father. That was true for his entire life. Even being obedient to the cross, it was to bring glory to the Father through his death. And everything that is happening in heaven now, Jesus is still giving glory to the Father. Now listen to me, dear pastor. When you study to work on that sermon and you get up under the power of the Holy Spirit and you preach, if your objection and your main object in that, your main thing you're trying to do in that is to bring glory to the Lord, you have been conformed to the image of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to me, you Sunday school teachers. When what you do in that Sunday school class, you do to bring glory to the Father, you're being conformed to the image of Jesus' death. Listen to you people who have talent for music. If you're doing that, not in order to get the praise of men, but in order to bring glory to the Father who has saved you and who has given you the talent, and you're doing that in order to give glory to the wonderful God that you have, you have been conformed into the image 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the three ways in which Paul says, I want to know him deeper and more fully. I ask you tonight, did you know him at all? Did you know him at all? You say, well, I love the Lord, but that's wonderful. But that didn't answer my question. Did you know him? Have you ever committed your life to him? Well, didn't you hear me say I love the Lord? Yeah, I heard that, but listen to me. I was in love with her before I ever committed my life to her. Real love for God leads to a commitment of life, a surrender of life. It's more than just a decision. It is a surrender. Lord, everything I am or ever hope to be, I'm surrendering to you. You can be very appreciative for everything God has given you. He's given you a home to live in. He's given you a family. And you'd be very appreciative. But you'd still be living your life, your way. And you'd still be saying, I love the Lord, but I'm not committing my life to him. The first time I ever told her that I loved her, I remember she was standing on the porch. I'm standing on the sidewalk. That moon is hitting her, and she's just glowing in the moonlight. And I look up at her, and I say very hesitantly, I, uh, I love you. And she looked down at me, and she said, No, you don't. And I said, You're probably right, and turned and walked away. Now, why did she doubt the words that I said? Because she knew that my plans were to go to Memphis and start working on a master's degree at the university there in Memphis. She was going to be teaching in Missouri. I loved her, but I didn't want her to interfere with my plans. I loved her, but I didn't want her to change my life. And then when the day came that I told her, I'm not going to Memphis. I just signed a contract to teach school nine miles down the road that begins in three weeks. She knew then that I was sincere when I said, I love you. I have made a surrender of my life. Have you ever made that surrender of your life? You love him, but you don't want him to interfere with your lifestyle. You love him, but you want to be able to keep right on doing the things you've always done. Keep on enjoying the same type of drink you've always enjoyed having. Keep on doing the same things you've always enjoyed doing, even though you know that it was against his will. So tonight I ask you again, will you make that commitment of your life to Christ? Will you bow your heads with me? Now, you are only a prayer away from being saved tonight. You can say, Brother Ernie, I don't think it'd be that easy. Yes, it is. It's doctors that say it. There is power in a vow. If we have anyone here tonight who's ever serving in the police 
department in any form or fashion. That person has a very dangerous job. Why do they do it? Do they do that because of fantastic big salary they make? No, you know that's not true because they don't make a fantastic big salary. Then why in the world do they do it? They have made a vow. Anybody here tonight who has ever served in any form of the armed services, man, if you're a soldier or a Navy or a Marine or, or whatever, in any other services, you go where they tell you to go. You do what they tell you to do, whether you want it to or not. You do. Why? Because you have made a vow. And if you're married tonight, you've made a vow. And that vow changed your life. Whatever else that prayer of repentance is by which we get saved, it all boils down to be a fact that we're making a vow to God. And the word that we say with our mouth is only a hard effort to try to verbalize what our heart is saying. And our heart is saying, God, I am surrendering my life to you. And we make that surrender to him. Now, if you've never done that tonight, we're going to be singing an invitation on him. Pastor Jim is going to be standing right here tonight. And you need to step out right where you are and just come to him tonight. And just say to him tonight, Pastor, I am surrendering my life to Jesus Christ. You can do it if you will. It is never a question of the ability. It is always a question of the will. You can if you will. Now, if you're sitting by somebody tonight, and you think that they want to come forward, don't hesitate just to lean over and say, I'll go with you if you want to go. It's hard to walk down these aisles. And so therefore, just give them that word of encouragement. I'll walk down that aisle with you if you want to go. Now, let's have that word of prayer. Then we'll have our invitation on him, which we're inviting you to come. Dear Lord, I pray tonight that you just take the next few moments and that the Holy Spirit just sweetly seduce someone tonight to say yes to you. God, there's a young man here tonight that needs to say yes. There's a young woman here tonight who's been living her life separated from you. Help her tonight come tonight, dear Lord. Just take this invitation and glorify Jesus. For I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. As we stand to our feet and as we sing our invitation with him. God is calling. Come tonight. Come tonight. As he is calling. Come. I'll go forward with you if you want to go. I'll go with you if you want to go. Come tonight as he's calling. Come as he's calling. Over here. Over here. Over here, come. Come. Come, what he's calling. What he's calling. 
Just as I am, Lord. Just as, Just as I am. Come and be caught. Lamb of God, I come. Oh, Lamb of God, I come. As he called tonight. Come now. Come now. Come now. As he calls tonight. As he calls, come. We'll sing one more verse. If no one comes, you will close my part of the invitation. Come now. Side riches here. 